Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Protesters in Israel are calling for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to resign. Their continued calls come amid a weekend of violent clashes with police in what many observers say were peaceful protests. Police arrested a dozen protesters and tried to remove many more from the Prime Minister's home in Jerusalem. Could you please just give us a, a brief introduction of who you are, uh, where you are, and some background of the party of which you are a member? Right. So, uh, yeah, I am a JB. I am uh, a member of the Jerusalem branch of the Israeli Communist Party and of uh, Hadash Front. I am part of the uh, secretariat of the Jerusalem branch, and I've been in this uh, position for about uh, three or four months now. Um, I joined um, the party uh, officially, like the, the Hadash uh, party officially um, in June, and we have been working in activities ever since. Um, basically, um, in recent months, uh, we have a lot of activity here in Jerusalem in particular, and because of the uh, political climate that uh, Israel uh, have found itself in. Mm. Okay, I see. I see. Okay, obviously you've used some terms there, Hadash, uh, and obviously the, the CPI. Um, I think we'll come back to the Hadash thing a bit later, because uh, obviously I know that, that fits into the, the parliamentary politics and whatnot. Um, right. I suppose, uh, as someone who's part of the, the Communist Party of Israel, and as someone who lives uh, in Israel, um, I'm sure you've come across uh, the discussion, as I see, being someone who's uh, we're discussing this issue from outside of of, um, of Israel, but there's, there's a big sort of topic which is obviously Zionism and mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. So in recent sort of uh, years, there's been a a discussion around uh, or criticism of people that raise uh, concerns or, or make criticisms of is of the Israeli state of of them being accused of anti-Semitism. So um, I just want to see what you guys think of that and what you think of that. 
Right. So obviously, um, this has been an issue for decades. Uh, even back uh, when the Soviet-Israeli split happened in the 50s, uh, is basically when this rhetoric started, uh, with every anti-Zionist position being denounced as anti-Semitic, uh, both on the world stage uh, and within Israel. Uh, usually they wouldn't call them like anti-Semitic, but they would call them something like traitors or you're selling your own nation, your own people out. Obviously, that's something that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people in Israel, like uh, leftists, uh, deal with. Uh, I assume similar things happen in other countries where communists are viewed as like the enemy of the nation uh, or the national spirit, and so on. But uh, in Israel, we have the added uh, complication of the uh, national contradiction and the occupation. Uh, in general, everyone who uh, pretty much by like the mainstream bourgeois narrative, anyone who acknowledges the occupation even, or uses the word, is labeled as a leftist and an anti-Zionist or a traitor by the right and by uh, some of the mainstream media. So, um, yeah, we definitely see that. Even now, um, the protests, even though they are not particularly left-wing, are entirely denounced as like anti-Zionist, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, well, not anti-Semitic, but anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish uh, thing mm -hmm. by the right. Mm. So, like, so these things are seen as an attack on, on the, on the, from, from the right wing. They, they describe these things uh, as being an attack on the Jewish state, on, on, on the Jewish nation. Because there is a very heavy um, identification between the Jewish the Jewish people or the Jewish nation, if you will, and the state of Israel uh, within Zionism. Mm. Uh, the point where like American Jews who aren't uh, like openly Zionists could be seen as even not real Jews by some in Israel. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's um it sounds quite extreme, but um, I'd say that in Israel, um, Zionism is very, very influential for many people. And I think uh, it's a very central core, like a uh, part of, I guess, culture in general. Right. Yes. So, I mean, it does sound very strong and, and uh, it's, it does sound like it's fused with um, at least a large part of the people's national identity. So I guess I'll make that into a question, sort of, I mean, to what extent do you have this kind of strong uh, Zionist sentiment and this sort of strong Zionist feeling? Is it, is it um, quite common for the majority of people to have this view that uh, if you criticize Israel, you're criticizing um, the Jewish people, that it's, uh, that it's like a deep core, that you're a traitor uh, in that sense? In... I think that for the majority of people, um, it is very much uh, it is very much that way. Personally, I grew up in a uh, quote unquote a religious Zionist uh, family, which is uh, one of the um, one of the like uh, political groupings in Israel. And please, for me, uh, like ever since you learn how to read, basically you read stuff. About uh, about Zionism, about how much it is important. I'd say um, I remember when uh, I was in uh, 
just after I finished high school, we had some lectures by our former, like, like my former high school principal thing. And he said stuff like, taught us about the crisis, the, uh, the crisis narrative, which is the narrative that the Jewish people is always in crisis. And that's why Israel is necessary to maintain the survival of the Jewish people. And that's why Israel must be strong. And every attempt to weaken Israel is an attack on the Jewish people. It is very much that uh, sense that people actually fear that if Israel isn't always strong and always wins, they think they will be killed. Um, like extreme stuff, even uh, every high school student in Israel um, has the opportunity. Uh, it's very encouraged to go on uh, uh, one uh, like overseas trip to Poland to see uh, like death camps and concentration camps and ghettos to reinforce the feeling that without Israel, we will all be dead. Mm. Um, now, I will say that among uh, some of the left groups and the left circles, um, there is a problem of actual anti-Semitism veiled behind uh, mm. anti-Zionism. But sometimes it's very difficult to like, um, like figure out which is which. And right. obviously, when you call someone an anti-Semite, even if he is, you'll say he's just being anti-Zionist. Um, right. Obviously, uh, what we should see Israel is, as a bourgeois, a colonialist, uh, apartheid state, uh, very militaristic, uh, mm -hmm. fascist in power, and so on. Uh, but I think that at least Jewish people, the Jewish nation, is obviously a nation like any other, they're not. Uh, inherently uh, and not, not inherently like imperialistic and I do think that in the future both Jews and uh, Palestinians will be able to live in peace together in the same state mm -hmm. I just want to go back on, on one thing there uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you've obviously said quite a few interesting things there but uh, the school element you said that the, the sort of crisis theory was something that your headmaster was uh, explaining it and sort of sort of this idea of the state in its particular form of de of defending Jews uh, in that sense with that national identity. That was something that was, you know, being taught from school and shown to you at school. Yeah, definitely. Um, even before, like, um, just the presence of uh, what's called soldier, soldier teachers in uh, Israeli schools and uh, preschools. What's a soldier uh, teacher, sorry? Yeah, so uh, as you probably know, Israel has a conscription system where all adult Jews and some other groups as well um, at the age of 18 uh, get conscripted to the military. A lot of the people go into non-combat and even non-military roles. For example, uh, military teachers. They go, they're basically soldiers in uniform, usually, uh, usually young girls who go to schools and teach either stuff about the military or about Israel or national heritage, stuff like that. It's part of the uh, education uh, mm. core, the Israeli military. Uh, yeah, you have an entire education core which deals specifically with this. And so that's not only the military. You have other stuff. As I said, you have a big emphasis on teaching uh, Jewish strategies 
particularly the Holocaust and also a lot of other stuff in Jewish history, like uh, the um, the Ukrainian pogroms throughout the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and like the Crusades and stuff like that. A very heavy emphasis is put on teaching anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously this, this narrative is pushed in mainstream media. I remember uh, three years ago, there was a like um, multi-chapter um, uh, series on national TV and showcasing and exposing the growing anti-Semitic threat in America. And while obviously there is like a rise of anti-Semitism, it is this, it was described as if Jews must leave America now or else they'll be destroyed and they must come to Israel. That's the Mm. narrative that was, um, this thing is omnipresent. Basically it's very difficult to detach yourself from this. Mm. Even, even people who are like self-described socialists and communists, even who hear um, who, who fear this uh, eventuality, and uh, yeah, it's one of the that's the reactionary ideology we live in. Yeah. Okay, that, that's very interesting. I, that this, I'd not heard of lots of what you're talking about there in terms of particularly soldier teachers. Um, I think something that I would like to ask is a. Uh, Particularly, like obviously, with historical examples, uh, whether it's uh, Germany or South Africa or any country, America included, uh, any country that has a sort of uh, a very strong national image of itself, um, tends to produce films that go around with that. I mean, do you have a sort of is there a famous sort of jingoistic uh, film industry that matches with this? And and uh, like, what 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 kind of films? What what would be the name of these kinds of films? Um, interestingly enough, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of anti-war films. I mean, even it's kind of ironic. Um, a lot of the cultural sphere combines like militarism with like hopeful pacifism. The, for example, uh, the IDF still has, and used to have more, they have bands, like conscripts who would be put into bands, who make songs and music. Almost all of the songs, even the military songs, would include elements of pacifism. Um, I don't know if this is out of like trauma, like cultural trauma of war, or if it's because of uh, maybe a hypocritical pacifism. But um, there are, uh, I think it's very notable. There are several films uh, that were made by former soldiers. Um, which very much criticize war. For example, um, one of the most famous Israeli movies is called Vaults with Bashir, which is written by people who participated in the invasion of Lebanon and mm-hmm. in the um, massacres in uh, the refugee camps. And basically the whole movie is uh, just showcasing how Israel is complicit in war crimes. And that was very popular both in Israel and abroad, despite being very critical of Israel. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, you do have more casual like films and especially TV series, which um, revolve around national security, either uh, seeing some Mossad agents uh, mm. in action or seeing soldiers fighting terrorists. It does exist, 
but I don't think in the same, uh, not as much as in America. Despite I see. America, I guess maybe it's because Israelis, most Israelis know what the military and war is like. And right. most Israelis um, don't like, they don't like uh, being in the military, even if they have positive like view of it overall. Um, people don't usually look forward to being a soldier. Right. I see. So a different relationship with, with military service than, than the US or perhaps other, other nations of that description. I see. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, we, the topic is there. Uh, you know, conscription, uh, militarism. Um, your your party, obviously, is, is against militarism. And uh, I think it mentions uh, the recognition of the right to conscientious objection. Um, right. And there is conscription. So, I mean, how, how has this played out for um, for you? as well as your, your party members? I wasn't really politically conscious uh, back when I was uh, 19, when I was conscripted. Um, but I started reading like communist and Marxist-Leninist theory while I was in active duty. Uh, that's actually how I got into it. So the question of contentious, like uh, conscious uh, object, uh, objection never really came up to me. Mm. Um, and I know that um, for some of the other party members, it was the same story, like they weren't communists before, they are now. But mm. I do know that many of our um, comrades, especially in Tel Aviv, uh, did, um, did, did um, like avoid the draft or uh, did a, what's called a yeah, contentious uh, objection. Mm. And a uh, few, I think like, Eight years ago, there was a group of teenagers who all signed together like a like a big letter, like an open letter, uh, denouncing uh, the IDF and refusing to conscript. And they were arrested, and there was a giant legal uh, struggle over that. And eventually, they were released. Um, there are also several organizations we work with uh, who help those who want to object to actually avoid uh, or at least get through um, the uh, persecution period. Because if you try to object, you you can either get like um, a medical uh, waiver that says that you can't be a soldier or some, something like that. Mm-hmm. But many people just have to go to like um, objectors uh, prison, it's called objectors prison. And they spend like a month or more there in prison and it's like a criminal case. It's not very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, even within the like Zionist circles and the Zionist liberals, there are many people who want to end conscription because yeah. it's, it's very unprofitable. It's not good for the economy, and you get and it causes a lot of mental health issues. Like the biggest, the leading cause of death for IDF soldiers is actually suicide because they do not fit in a military uh, framework. Mm. Um, so there are many people who want to end that, and especially like you have groups like uh, the uh, so-called the ultra-orthodox or the Haredi populations who mm. uh, have massive protests and riots over uh, the notion of them being forced to conscript. Um, so for many people, it's actually a very serious, um, mm. issue. 
just to recap this, so did you say um, if you do object, obviously there are different avenues to attempt, whether it's a medical or whatnot, but you also have the, the sort of quote-unquote conscious objection route, but you are locked up for, was it a month? Did you say there's a trial? Sorry, I didn't catch the detail there of what exactly the repercussions are for, for objecting. Basically, there is a law that says you have to go through like the conscription like uh, procedures, mm-hmm. and people can get various like medical waivers and uh, there are also like special exceptions, like uh, very talented musicians can get exceptions and so on. But mm-hmm. basically it applies to all Jews and Druze people. And mm-hmm. if you want to, uh, like uh, if you object to conscription on moral grounds and you don't get any waivers, you get imprisoned. Like even if it's I'll not- How long you go to prison for usually? I think it's around a month. I'm not sure, but I know that um, it's basically uh, it's classified as desertion, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's kind of a, it's like a serious offense. Uh, mm-hmm. And as would you have a record for that as well? Hmm? And uh, yeah. actually, a record might follow for that. I think it is a criminal uh, record thing as well. Sure. I see. And so, uh, how long is the actual? If you were to stay and do it, I mean. Is it one-year conscription, two-year conscription? If you actually decide to go through with it and, can, and, and do it, how long is uh, it? For decades, it has been three years for men and two years for females. And a few years ago, it was dropped to um, two, two, two and eight months, two years and eight months for men and two and I think four months for women. And currently, discussion in the cabinet and parliament to reduce it to two and a half years to everyone Um, because they found themselves in a situation where uh, the population increased to the point where they have tens of thousands of new recruits with nothing to give them to do so people so you have like conscripted 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 soldiers doing stuff like uh cutting hair in military bases or (laughs) shops in military bases, uh, or just being secretaries and stuff like that, uh, which is a huge waste of resources, of course. If you don't mind me asking, what, what, what did you find yourself doing when you, when you did your conscription? I was uh, in the Israeli Navy on a combat uh, role in some ship. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. That's fine. And then, obviously... In terms of, uh, I mean, coming back to the the actual uh, the CP in your current work, um, you know, uh, you obviously, what is your relationship to the state of, to the, of of the state in Israel right now? Yourself and obviously the CP more so. Um, you know, you're a, a communist party in Israel, uh, sympathetic to the sort of Arab working class. Uh, do you guys often find yourself in the the crosshairs of, of Mossad, for example? I think. That for us, because we are a legal and very well-established party, we don't have any overt oppression. For us in protests and stuff, we'll sometimes get targeted by police and more than others. I think that for Palestinian parties, or for example, in the West Bank, like um, the People's Party, the Communist Party, and the Democratic Front and so on, they have a real big issue of infiltration. Uh, and of spying and surveillance and violence 
Um, for example, you could be, let's say you're a Palestinian uh, student in one of the universities in the West Bank, and you share a post related to the Democratic Front. Mm. Uh, you could find yourself uh, disappeared into some uh, uh, Shin Bet uh, torture chamber. And right. it's a big problem in East Jerusalem. Whenever there's protests, people could get arrested in mass. Let's just 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 help help someone who perhaps is not familiar with these terms. So you you mentioned obviously Democratic Front there, and and of course the I think you said the Communist Party of Palestine. Uh, so these are the kind of organizations that are more so in the crosshairs than yourselves. Yes, uh, everything which is overtly Palestinian is mm-hmm. much. It's it is in danger of and is infiltrated, mm-hmm. and um. There's obviously that in uh, the Communist Party as well. Um, uh, it's like it's a it's a problem for any real um, Communist Party with power or with the possibility to inflict any sort of damage. Yes, um, especially a party like uh, like the Communist Party of Israel, which has thousands of members and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of uh, electoral supporters. And which has elected officials and municipalities and so on, um, but uh, Mossad is usually something which is related to foreign spying. Uh, yes. The internal security agency is called Shin Bet. Shin Bet. Okay. So just want to go back for a second. So obviously, you you, you said there's the, the Communist Party of Palestine is obviously far more in the crosshairs than yourselves, and you're on the western side of Jerusalem, and they're on the eastern side. Is that correct? Yes, um, it's not exactly a west-east split. It's just called that way because uh, it relates to the um, the pre-67 uh, borders. Uh, as you know, back in, uh, in the 40s, there was the UN partition plan uh, to decolonize uh, the, Palestine, uh, the Palestinian mandate of the British Empire. Yes. And, uh, you know, one side was a Jewish state and the other was uh, an Arab state. Uh, which never came to fruition. Uh, it was the, and Jordan, the Kingdom of Jordan, invaded the part of the territories which were supposed to be uh, the Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. And uh, they occupied uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem, the eastern part of Jerusalem, uh, using their legionaries. And in 1967, Israel um, was, like attacked Jordan and conquered uh, uh, West, uh, East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank, which until this day is under military occupation. I see. And no, th- thank you for that. That was very useful. Um, so if you were to do something like this, if you were to go and approach, I assume you already might work with and have events with the CP of, of the Palestinians. Um, but if you were to go across and organize stuff, is that when you find yourself uh, coming into trouble with with Shin Bet, uh, what happens when you try and organize stuff with them? With the many, CD? many of the Palestinian parties, not even communist parties, but all parties uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, many of them are um, classified as a terrorist organization, and working with them directly could be a problem. Um, the one party with we are like in like official or semi-official uh, relationship is the Palestinian People's Party, 
which was actually part of the original Palestinian Communist Party, which included both Jews and Palestinians during the British mandate. After um, the war, uh, the party split into a Palestinian uh, section and Israeli section, even though uh, relations are still good and uh, we host like, uh, now with Corona, it's always like internet events and Mm -hmm. they are like, they are a legal party. They uh, do parliamentary and legal work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they engage in terrorism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but we do have uh, some problems with that. Regarding the West Bank, um, the Communist Party of Israel has an official policy that because we do not recognize the occupation, uh, we do not recognize the Zionist uh, rule over the West Bank, we do not go as the party to the West Bank to do any activities. We sometimes go as individuals. For example, here in East Jerusalem, we we go to like East Jerusalem protests against like deportations and stuff, but mm-hmm. not as uh, the party, but as an individual leftist activist and mm-hmm. with other leftist activists. Mm-hmm. And now part of the reasoning for this is because these people have no rights like no political rights in Israel, we can't, we can't legally represent them. Uh, it would be very much like uh, being uh, the white savior uh, sort of a stereotype where s- someone who is privileged comes and saves someone who isn't. They can't even vote uh, for mm-hmm. their people to be in our party because they're not citizens of Israel. So that's mm-hmm. why instead of trying to deal with that, we basically uh, allow the People's Party of Palestine and the other communists in Palestine to organize the Palestinian people. Mm, I see. Okay. Um, I guess the descriptions that you're having here with about groups of people living under um, occupation without political rights, yet still living or in or under that state, um, you know, the term apartheid Israel, you know, it's quite often we hear this, um, You've been using that term, so I, I guess you agree with it. Uh, how does it manifest? How does Israeli apartheid manifest itself? I mean, obviously, we've talked about a lack of rights, a lack of uh, vote. Um, but when we're talking about apartheid, are we talking about the real separation of roads, of schools, of amenities? Uh, how how visual, how sort of real is it in that sense? So first, we'll have to do a bit of a history uh, like rundown. Sure. Um, back in 1948, uh, a large group of Palestinians were deported or for whatever reasons had to leave their houses. Many times it was by force. Uh, and even those who weren't forced to leave, they were never allowed to come back after the war ended. So they became refugees in uh, various countries. But some of the original Palestinian population remained in Israel. For the first I think two decades of Israeli history, they lived under a very authoritarian and oppressive martial law, um, which culminated in uh, a very horrific uh, massacre, which happened due to some uh, military uh, bureaucracy uh, misunderstanding, which caused the life of many people, many civilians. What massacre was that, sorry? Hmm? Which massacre was that, sorry? Uh, it was the Kfar Qasim uh, massacre, 
which basically some uh, generals gave uh, inconsistent orders regarding uh, the curfew uh, in that village. And uh, they just ordered the military to shoot on all the civilians still working in their fields. Mm. Okay. And after that incident, basically, uh, after, of course, outrage and so on, the military, uh, the martial law was ended. And the Israeli, the, the Arab Israeli citizens were given, quote unquote, equal rights. Uh, in reality, they still face a lot of inequalities in terms of budgets, like, uh, like uh, government budgets, in terms of policing. Um, you know, racial profiling, stuff like that. You know, stuff that you expect to see in a border state. A much more severe uh, form of apartheid happens in the occupied territories, and in specifically the West Bank, where you have uh, millions of Palestinians who live under Israeli military rule, but have no Israeli citizenship because they're technically citizens of the Palestinian Authority. And these people, even though they essentially live under Israeli control in many of the, in many cases, they can't vote in Israeli elections. You can't get elected into any positions. They can't influence Israeli politics in any way. If they protest, they can often find themselves very heavily repressed by police and military police. And um, that's why we call it an apartheid state. Um, mm. A few months ago, there was supposed to be the uh, notorious annexation of parts of the West Bank, which would make this apartheid reality even more pronounced, because then they would be living in, like, quote-unquote, Israeli territory, like civilian administrative pe- uh, territory, but not as uh, citizens. Um, mm. Now, the way Zionists usually justify this is by saying, well, they do have a citizenship. They have a Palestinian authority. We do not control them. It's just a military occupation thing. And they have the autonomy and so on and so forth. But obviously the Palestinian authority is part of the Israeli state apparatus. And uh, it is like the PLO is essentially an ally of Israel. So it is de facto apartheid, but not, you know, de jure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, I mean, quite, quite, a, quite a statement there with you're saying the PLO is, is a part of the occupation. Uh, could you describe that a bit more, what, why you think that's the case? Sure. Um, during, like, in the 80s and early 90s, you had what's called the first intifada, which was um, a popular insurrection and uprising with riots and, and like, um, uh, people's occupations and people's governments and so on. Very uh, proletarian uh, uprising to get a Palestinian state uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza. However, um, during the Madrid conference, which was supposed to be negotiation between the uh, protest between the protesters in Palestine and Israel, the PLO leadership in Tunisia had a secret deal with Israel where they completely sidelined the actual people on the ground. Uh, like the the People's Party and the Communist Party and so on, they sidelined them and made a deal directly with Israel without any like you know international attention. And what they gave the PLO was in practice much less than an independent Palestine and much less than what was uh, discussed in the negotiation. And ever since, 
Israel is cooperating with the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, or the with Fatah, as it's called now. Mm-hmm. And it's been cooperating them in terms of military aid, uh, security aid, financial aid, and so on. And even though you might have like people, like leaders of the Palestinian Authority, rhetorically denounce Israel, they're still completely dependent on Israel. They're completely part of like uh, the state apparatus. It's basically what you'd call controlled opposition. Uh, mm-hmm. It's much easier to have um, uh, uh, non-radical, non uh, non-confrontive um, Palestinian authority than to have a democratic Palestinian state alongside you. Mm-hmm. I see. It even yeah, okay. like as an as like a propaganda role, because you have people within the Palestinian Authority uh, who uh, like they have very anti-Zionist uh, rhetorics, but they are not actually dangerous. But you can show them on TV to show, look at how much they hate us. We must never give them power. That kind of thing. I see. I see. They so they can play, in, play into the designer's narrative in that sense without being, without having any substantial effect in reality. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, I just wanted to touch back on, uh, obviously we discussed de jure and de facto apartheid. Um, but within schooling, uh, within Israel proper, so if we, if we ignore the occupied territories for the moment, so, but within uh, Israel itself, um, do, is there a, a large amount of segregation in terms of schooling uh, yeah. amongst different communities? Is it a legalized thing or is it just by yeah, the fact? It's a different education system. Of course, there are, there are like practical justifications for it. For example, language. You can't like teach people uh, in not their native language and so on. Um, but um, for the most part, uh, Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis do not go uh, to the same schools. Although there are specific schools in specific localities, like in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv, where there are like mixed schools. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with um, residential uh, segregation as well, because for the most part, uh, Jews and uh, Israeli Arabs don't live in the same uh, cities or towns. Usually it's either a Jewish town or an Arab town. Very rarely are there mixed towns like Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Haifa, Tel Aviv, or Be'er Sheva. Uh, other than that, it's usually segregated. I see. And is this perhaps where we might see the sort of the more visual side of the apartheid uh, within Israel proper? Because if you do have uh, majority Arab towns and majority uh, is a Jewish towns, and you were mentioning earlier that there's a budgeting difference, that there's you know less money uh, given to Arab towns, is this where people might then see and say things like there's um, Arab roads that are different and, and, and are in poor condition and the Arab towns are in disrepair compared to the Jewish towns having perhaps better access to water or better access to roads? Um, there also has been a particular thing about roads. People always mention that there are non, uh, sorry, Jewish-only roads and, and, and roads for, for the Arabs in, in a sense. Yeah. The Jewish and Arab roads thing is particularly in the West Bank, because mm-hmm. uh, there you have Israeli uh, colonial settlements, which connect each other, the settlements to each other and to Israel, but then Palestinians can drive there. Mm-hmm. In Israel, a proper, quote-unquote, like in the recognized 1948 borders, uh, you have 
you definitely do have a difference in quality between um, uh, Arab and Jewish towns and Jewish cities. And you can see it in transportation, in electricity, in construction, in everything. Uh, even though it's not technically a legal difference because it's not a law, it's a budget, it's very noticeable. But I'd say the place where um, the apartheid is most noticeable within Israel is on the question of language. And what I mean by that is Hebrew uh, has been, or like since the beginning and now even more, uh, promoted as the sole official language. Uh, even though the Arab, Arabic used to be official, it's not anymore. Um, so, for example, in any, in like in, on television or in newspapers, you you only see Hebrew for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arab Israelis are forced to learn Hebrew to get by. They have to know Hebrew to go uh, to university, to go to supermarkets, to go to to their jobs because everyone else speaks Hebrew. No one is bothering to learn Arabic. Very few people. Even I, I took Arabic in high school. They only teach you stuff uh, that could maybe help you in the military and stuff like that. And no effort to educate Israelis on how to talk to like Arabic citizens and to Arabic-speaking citizens or to talk to Palestinians even. And mm. nothing of that sort. Very segregated language uh, thing. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and I mean, I know we've discussed education before, but I suppose uh, we could we need to touch on this is um, how is the establishment of Israel uh, taught in schools? Uh, obviously, with 1948 being the sort of the main piece, how, how is that portrayed in schooling? Uh, it's portrayed as like the fruit, the glorious fruit of uh, centuries long yearning and struggle for Jewish uh, uh, self-determination uh, and victory over our many enemies and victory over Nazism and victory over Arab uh, nationalism and so on. It's uh, very romanticized. Uh, okay. Usually, at least I wasn't taught anything about Palestinians uh, in school. I see. So, so the analysis of what was here before 1948 is, is, is maybe brushed over. Even more than that, it's usually described um, that, like, they usually focus on like the fact that the Ottoman Empire wouldn't didn't consider Palestine to be an economically viable region, so it was less developed. So usually, it's described as a backwards wasteland of savages that uh, the glorious Zionist pioneers came to um, uh, to revive and return glory to the old days of Zion and so on and so forth. So very colonialist, uh, romantic yeah. view uh, Got it. that you won't probably even see in the West nowadays in like Western uh, or North American countries. I see. So, so you're comparing it to sort of like the settler, uh, you know, uh, in, yeah, exactly. Bringing, bringing civilization and bringing glory to the, to the barren backward wasteland. I know in particular, um, they talk about the city of Jaffa, um, and which was an Arab city uh, where Tel Aviv is like, it's part of Tel Aviv today. But they talk about how small and poor and undeveloped it was com- in compared to the new Jewish towns that were around, uh, popping up around it and the new Jewish ports and so on. So, you know, 
Um, yeah, it's pretty much combining uh, both uh, biblical romanticism with uh, settler colonial uh, rhetoric. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I, actually, uh, this fits very nicely. I mean, uh, talking about people building new houses and building new places and 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 settling um, the settlements. Obviously, the new settlements. Uh, how how often uh, and yeah, to what extent? Are new settlements being erected? I mean, is there one every week? Uh, is it whole huge sections of the country? How much is it changing? How much is being built? I don't have like, I don't know how to tell you like specific numbers, but right. one thing to keep in mind that many of these settlements are basically, they pop up all over the place. They're like uh, quote unquote illegal settlements of like 10 people, like 10 radical nationalists who go from one of the established uh, settlements take like a caravan or something and build a new town in the middle of nowhere. And then either they get normalized or police removes them and they just do it again somewhere else, uh, 500 meters away from there. So there's a lot of that. It's pretty much an attempt by the far right and the colonialists to, uh, quote unquote, um, make facts on the ground. That's like, that's a Hebrew Mm-hmm. Phrase. I don't think it translates very well. But the the thought behind it is that if enough people already move out and settle and build new towns, even if it's illegal at first, um, it would be impractical to remove them, especially if the government doesn't really want to or care. Uh, so it will become a fact in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that. The state heavily supports these settlements. Um, there is a big, like state owned, like public, uh, services sector that employs all of these settlers and just is entirely focused on just increasing the Jewish population in the West Bank. Um, you have stuff like, um, you have various like far right, uh, organizations, which converts people from the third world into Judaism and then imports them to Israel and settles them in the West Bank. One of them is called Shavei Israel, uh, which basically goes to various communities around the world which claim to be uh, secret Jews or lost tribes or whatever. Okay. And they come there, they verify them, and then they begin mass converting them by, like, by the thousands and putting them into settlements. For example, you have a place called Kiryat Alba, which has a lot of uh, East Indian, um, East Indian uh, Jews. As in, as in, uh, what, what do you, when you say East Indian, are you talking about Bangladesh, China? Or what, what do you mean by East East Indians? Uh, sorry, you say uh, the Eastern states within India. India, sorry, India. This is Asia. Sorry, okay, so Kerala or or, or, or whatnot. Okay, they, they're like they're, they're, they're like um, on the borders between India and China and Bangladesh and Nepal and all of that region. Uh, so like this specific group is called the Bnei Menashe and they claim to be descendants of the tribe of Manasseh from the Bible. And uh-huh. um, so they're converting them in Nepal to Judaism to like Orthodox Ashkenazi Judaism. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when they immigrate to Israel, they specifically like give them housing in the West Bank because uh, it's heavily subsidized. Now, I kind of feel bad for these people because they're like they escape like 
the life of pro- poverty and in the like in India only to be put in one of the most dangerous places in the world in the service of a colonial empire we just use it wow okay this is this is very I've, I've not heard this before so they're using they are taking Indian East Indians converting them to Judaism bringing them into the essentially into the settlements the illegal settlements in order to make numbers on the ground to make it a reality on the ground and yeah, the illegal settlements which are subsidized by the Israeli state and not only like uh, from India you have they have communities all over the world which they uh, which they bring quote unquote bring back like from China uh, Peru uh, Africa and so on a lot of Ethiopian Jews um, eventually moved to the West Bank because it's the cheapest for them okay I see I see. So this is quite quite a project. Like these settlements are, it's uh, it's not obviously it does have the sort of very crazy element of a person with a caravan or a bunch of guys with a caravan just jumping on a piece of land and staying there until either they keep it or not. But it's also involving state subsidization. It's involving a giant project of bringing people from across the world. Um, and obviously, so yeah, the the thing that I want to look at there is the. The relationship with the state in that sense. So I know that you said that they subsidize. Uh, they also do try and kick them off if they can, you know, bring them off the land. Uh, but when it comes to schooling and infrastructure, I mean, surely they, these people are Israeli citizens. They want to protect them. So they start building infrastructure. How, how does that work? Yes. Eventually what happens is that if a settlement sticks around or gets the appropriate uh, legal, quote unquote, legal um Permissions and so on, they become a registered town as any other Israeli town, only with additional security arrangements. Um, one other thing that they have is that uh, people who live in the West Bank have a much easier time getting guns. So it happens that many, many of the Israeli settlers are just armed, while regular Israeli citizens are not. Mm. Um, so you have all kinds of various uh, state support of. Uh, the settlements. Sometimes mm-hmm. even outright like uh, territories which Israel have complete control over in the West Bank, they just land a city or a town and just build it. It also happened. Mm. Okay, interesting. Okay, I think we'll uh, we can come back to some of this stuff in a moment. I think what I want to turn to is now is um, uh, actually more sort of recent politics. Uh, there is has been a recent upset in uh, Israeli politics. Obviously, there's a uh, protests against Netanyahu. There's obviously uh, corruption allegations, uh, deadlock in government. The virus also is playing into all of this. Um, you can comment on these, but also I'd like to see what it's like from the side of a communist party. What? How does this affect your work, um, your organizing, and uh, yeah, what are you doing in relation to all of that? Um, I'll start off with an analogy. I'd say Israel is in a somewhat similar situation to um, the Weimar Republic. Um, this sort of um, comparison is very common in co- Israeli political commentary now, and I think it's pretty accurate. And I'd say Netanyahu is probably in the role of Hindenburg or some of the other German po- uh, conservative politicians who allies with the far right and so on. Netanyahu himself doesn't have any. Uh, views or ideology or morals or anything he's pretty much just a self-serving like bourgeois not even a servant of the bourgeois he himself is like a massive uh, like um, 
like uh, he's a capitalist himself. He is like a millionaire or billionaire or whatever. Um, so what happened is that uh, in the past year and several years, many allegations of corruption were um, brought up against him, which eventually turned into materialized into actual like uh, indictments and actual uh, uh, investigations and actual uh, legal cases against him. And there's plenty of evidence that shows that he, on many occasions, betrayed basically Israel and Israel's security and uh, the public for uh, the personal gain of himself and his family members. In addition to that, uh, he's like the classical uh, right-wing uh, useless politician who just boasts about being strong but doesn't solve any of the actual problems because he's a major neoliberal. So he doesn't solve like, you know, unemployment or housing crisis or the health crisis or anything else, which were all very big issues even before uh, the coronavirus. Mm. And the coronavirus basically just very much accelerated the growing movement against him. What happened is that the lockdown and uh, the various restrictions not only angered specific communities which were directly harmed by that. For example, um, the ultra-Orthodox community is discriminated against in regards to lockdowns. Mm -hmm. uh, it also caused many people who were formerly his supporters, like um, small business owners and so on, uh, to turn against the government and against Netanyahu, who basically just betrayed everyone. And there's a lot of like various minor uh, incidents in the past month who just add up where he does something or his ministers or his family members do stuff which are, are abhorrent to the people. For example, his son, Yair Netanyahu, is very vocal on social media and he, mm -hmm. just, he, he just talks like a disgusting pig. He like he let's say there is a protester uh, uploading a picture, so he'll just comment like a like a kid that they're fucking ugly and fat, whatever. Mm -hmm. and a grown ass man. It's a thirty something year old man who does stuff like that, mm. and that just causes more and more people to hate uh, Netanyahu and his family. Um, this whole pretty much coalesced into one big protest in Jerusalem. Uh, in front of the uh, ministerial, uh, I'd call it the palace, mm -hmm. where he one of his houses, specifically this one, is the public house, mm -hmm. um, the taxpayer's uh, house, so on, mm -hmm. and where tens of thousands of people shows up, showed up uh, in the first, like, well, not the first one. Um, even before that, you had a permanent, like, protest tent town outside of the place. Which is where I came into into the thing with uh, the Communist Party. We visited the place and decided we want to protest as well. And the next week was the first big protest, which we already took part of. You had over twenty thousand people, um, almost rioting uh, in front of the prime minister's house. I think the police was not ready for the amount of anger because they didn't have many barricades in place. 
that we nearly like broke through to the house itself. And when they stopped at us there, we just um, broke into the uh, uh, the city center and we blocked the trains, we blocked uh, the streets. Um, it was a pretty um, intense moment because uh, police like started fighting back with uh, cavalry units and armored cars and so on. And ever mm-hmm. since, uh, additional aspects of opposition to police brutality also came into view. Now it's uh, once what was once only reserved to like Palestinians and ultra orthodox. Now everyone's talking about it, like uh, police brutality, mm-hmm. and uh, and while all this was happening, Netanyahu was uh, desperately passing laws to give himself emergency powers during Corona, what we call the Enabling Act. Mm. And uh, he did that, and that just caused even more people to come out of the streets. And, mm. uh, and each week, uh, we go out every, uh, every Saturday night. Um, more and more people come. Last week, we had over 40,000 people in Jerusalem alone. So they're growing? They're growing. Uh, I think outside of Jerusalem, you had 50,000 protesters, and inside Jerusalem, you had 40,000 last week. And, and these, these growing, this growing movement is obviously calling for him to resign, uh, calling him to do something. What, what are the specific demands started, of these people? It started, even though the earlier protests were much more extreme in, like, in their praxis, like we actually, yeah, you had burning, you had burning uh, trash cans and barricades and so on. They were very non-radical in their demand. It was basically just Netanyahu resign and go to prison and so on. Uh, however, um, in no small part, thanks to the efforts of the Communist Party, uh, the actual demands not only diversified, they also radicalized. Now people demand police reform. Now people demand justice to um, like victims of police brutality and police sexual harassment. You have mm. growing, uh, growing anger against uh, capitalism and against uh, against like um, legal corruption quote unquote of the of the capitalists and what we call the tycoons uh, you have uh, also finally last week uh, an entire delegation of Arab Israeli citizens also joined a protest with the communist party so now you have all kinds of Arab Israeli demands as well and uh, the list just keeps growing right and various environmentalist groups also joined the protests around uh, our block of the Communist Party and our allies in Jerusalem. Um, so definitely that. Uh, you also have a lot of petty bourgeois, Zionist, opportunist groups just popping out and founding themselves. I think like in the two first months of the protests alone, over a hundred new organizations, parties, and like other initiatives uh, formed most mm-hmm. of them obviously will not survive the, the winter i guess mm-hmm. um but you also see that a lot of the um demands we have also uh, expanded to other groups for example uh, what was uh, in the beginning like slogans during the protests were very very tame very very mild mm-hmm. very non-offensive like 
and Netanyahu resigned. You don't, we don't want you anymore has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we introduced like our own communist slogans calling for revolution. And last week, um, the, our slogans, our revolutionary slogans were broadcasted in the loudspeakers for everyone. And mm-hmm. everyone was doing the same like slogans that we originated. Obviously, they drop the more radical uh, stuff like opposition to Zionism. Um, mm-hmm. But many even retain anti-capitalist rhetoric uh, in the mm-hmm. protests who are not uh, formerly socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the greatest significance we have is the slow legitim- legitimization of socialist uh of the socialist movement in the mainstream uh mm. all of the news reports all of the like aerial shots we are the most uh, visible group because we have massive red flags and we have mm. a big group of like uh sometimes several hundred people around us with red flags mm. um and other flags and signs that we made um, mm. So definitely, you see that now. What we hope to do is start legitimizing, uh, legitimizing uh, the Palestinian flag. Next, uh, last week, um, one of our comrades from Nazareth was arrested after w- raising the Palestinian flag there. Uh, even though it's completely legal, uh, it's basically seen as a provocation. So the police threw him down. They beat up some of our comrades, and they took him. And a few hours later, they released him because it's obviously legal to do it. I see. So, this is, so are yeah. you going to be try, are you going to be perhaps raising the Palestinian flag in protest soon outside the the palace? Um, this is in discussion. Um, I mean, in other places in Israel, it's like it happens. Like in Tel Aviv, uh, you can raise the Palestinian flag in any protest, and nothing will happen to you. It's just that the reason in Jerusalem it's seen as a problem for the authorities is because of East Jerusalem. And if it becomes legitimized to hold a Palestinian flag in West Jerusalem, they can't do anything about it in East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that in East Jerusalem, then if things become uh, more complicated for them, you will start get Palestinian protests with Palestinian flags, and it will be visible for the rest of the popul- Palestinian population in the West Bank and in the world, and it's just a headache mm. for them. Mm. So I suppose with with this moment that's happening, this uh, spontaneous moment, as we might call it, uh, what uh, w- particularly like which who's organizing the meeting every week? Is it you guys particularly or is there someone else that joins with you? Is it like a, a, a sort of a group of different parties doing it? Is it just something that's become routine and if there is a leadership behind it, uh, you know, if it is you guys, I suppose you have your, your aims, but is it led, being led primarily by you? No, the protests themselves are led by a group of organizations with varying and very drastically different like ideologies mm-hmm. who coalesced around the aforementioned uh, yeah. tent town uh, in front of the palace. Uh, one of the group there is particularly is like more aligned with uh, like socialism and left wing uh, politics, but uh, the majority of them are ranging from like labor Zionists to like just liberals and so on. But they do not have well. They are the organizers. They do not really have much of a, a 
uh, influence over the character of the protests themselves. Because most people who come to the protests are not organized in any group. We, uh, we are lucky because we were organized beforehand. We are a communist party. We have our uh, groups. What we did in the protest is we created a block of radical leftists and progressives in Jerusalem around these protests. And under this block, we come together, we bring people from all over the country, like the environmentalists and the uh, block against police brutality and so on. Mm -hmm. We come together in the protest and we basically make a show of force. And, uh, you know, um, these protests actually uh, um, allowed us, the, the party, to grow massively. Uh, we have a lot of new members and uh, prospecting uh, activists for the party itself now, uh, mm -hmm. thanks to the protests. I see, I see. This is good, good, uh, good stuff for for other communist parties to learn from around the world, I guess, and other members uh, of your party too to learn from too. But um, I suppose, yeah. One of the, um, one of the advice, one of the things we learned for our practice is that. In these spontaneous protests, people don't like it when official party symbols and logos and flags are being uh, are like pushed on them. Uh, there is some sort of um, uh, rejection by the crowd, and I think I suspect it's uh, also supported by the regime to sort of uh, repulse away from parties. That's why we uh, usually don't like come in any party. Um, affiliation we mm. just bring a lot of red flags all of our signs are like handmade uh and it looks much more um authentic rather mm. than being a opportunistic move mm. Mm. yes yeah, so, so you, you come with slogans that join with the sentiment of the protest rather than uh than sort of parachuting in with uh with party symbology it's, I'd say it's like a dialectical response. Like if you see the people um, start to use the word revolution, then we go, all, we go all in. We made a giant sign saying we are the revolution with a giant red flag painted on it. Um, stuff like that. I think uh, something that other communist parties might uh, like mistake, the mistake with is coming with like giant hammers and sickles and so on to yes. like a seemingly uh, like mainstream protest that will just get them uh, kicked out of there. Yeah. And I suppose perhaps some men, so the, the, the sort of people attending that might, might not be able to see the, the, the relevance straight away. They, they might understand sort of exactly why are you bringing this political symbol that's, uh, you know, of a party, uh, where, how does this relate to what we're angry about? How does this relate to what we're actually here for? Um, as much as as much as a good communist might be able to explain that, the symbol yeah. is, might be not as uh, as easy to understand from the offset. Yeah, and it, even worse than that, some people will just accuse you of trying to like hijack the protest yeah. because they they come because they want to see Netanyahu gone, but then you're saying uh, let's build communism. I don't want that. I just go home. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, these are most likely also angry people. So exactly, if you if you're there distracting from their uh, their intent of what they want to get done, you might also end up making more enemies. Uh, yeah, being seen as opportunists in a sense. Uh, I think we did very well on this front. Um, also because we were the, like one of the first like organized groups 
to ever be there. Like even before the protest started, we went to the protest uh, tent town uh, like almost every day. Um, but especially now we're seeing as like a feature of these protests because in every single one you see you have like the aerial shots and the and the news reports and in the backgrounds you see all the red flags. Mm. 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 You know, we also had um, one major effect. Um, there was when the Enabling Act, the Emergency Powers Act, was being uh, uh, discussed or in passing Parliament, we had a massive march from the palace to the Parliament. And when we reached Parliament, one of our comrades went on top of uh, like one of the national monuments there and raised a massive red flag over it. Now, all of the right-wing media took shots of that and some other displays there and basically tried to rally uh, like far-right uh, hooligan groups to come and like disturb the protesters. That had a massive impact. That um, turned many of the protesters against the right in general because they saw, okay, these people are coming to get us. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff. I think what we, sh we should do and communists in general should do is utilize these uh, moments, like these spontaneous outbursts, as ways to get exposure and as ways to build, to get allies. Because I don't think we are in a revolutionary situation. I don't think it's possible to change the regime or topple Netanyahu through this protest, at least as they are now. I do mm -hmm. think it's the beginning of a longer struggle against fascism in general here and a struggle to get us more legitimized mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, like among Jews. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like you are certainly making progress on that front. It sounds like getting people to accept and see a red banner and red flags and to join them uh, in the legitimate protests against Netanyahu certainly seems to have affected, if you describe it as you are, with uh, people joining and uh, and people, yeah, people seeing you. It, it certainly, it seems like that. Um, I understand that you have, you don't have a, a unlimited time. So is there anything that you wanted to, to add a final point, a final thought? Um, I'd say that the most, the thing that Israeli, the Israeli bourgeois and the Zionist establishment is most afraid of is if Jews and Palestinians work together against them. If they see in a protest that is, has both Jews and Arabs, and if they see Palestinian flags alongside red flags and alongside Israeli flags, uh, that's the thing they're most afraid of. So everything they, basically everything they do uh, is targeted to disrupt this. So they do stuff which are seemingly like um, seemingly at odds, like both uh, suppressing uh, Palestinian like communists and uh, Palestinian like uh, rights, but then also encourage Palestinian and nationalist groups uh, or uh, support, for example, Hamas in uh, Gaza. Mm. Um, so we have to keep in mind that the only way for us to progress towards socialism and democracy is through this joint uh, struggle between both Jews and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, well, I mean, I would love to have uh, you on another time, JB, to discuss more. We didn't even 
uh, actually begin to go into the details of a, a two-state solution or or which borders we think we should uh, should be imposed or whatever. Um, but I'm sure we can have you on another time to go into some more stuff uh, if if you'd like. I think that would be good. But I will also um, I'll say just something short on that on the two-state uh, solution thing. The official position of the party is that in order to prevent the complete destruction of the Palestinian people, in order to stop the militarization of Israel, uh, we need uh, immediately to create a Palestinian state in the West Bank and in Gaza. And the reason um, we don't go, oh, let's just do a one-state solution right now, is because we still have colonialism. And because it's not even like a political viability, it's not a politically viable solution right now, because it's not a question of a one democratic state or two states. It's a question between complete annexation of the West Bank or an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. Obviously, as communists, we believe that in the future, Israel and Palestine will both be united under one state, under one socialist state. And obviously, that's our goal. But we do believe it's a necessity for the Palestinian people to have a state as soon as possible. Mm. Mm, I see. Uh, I, I, I would agree with you. Um, I think we, we can probably bring this up another time and discuss in more depth Gaza uh, and how a particular state should be formed. And perhaps also some more work that you've been doing with the, the Communist Party the Palestinians have. Um, but I'd say thank you, thank you very much for coming and speaking today and uh, giving us all these details. Uh, I've learned a lot and uh, I've really appreciated it. So thank you very much, PB. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. <laughs> And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.